Hey everyone, I wanted to take a minute to thank you for listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please consider supporting my Patreon page, patreon.com slash the humble hoof, where you can get special humble hoof perks. Thanks again for listening. Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. I spoke with Deb Davies, an international rider and trainer, a few months ago for Ida Hammer's podcast episode on looking at the whole horse when rehabbing feet. Our conversation led me to ask her if she'd be willing to do a podcast episode herself about improper riding and training and how it can affect how a horse wears its feet as well as its overall soundness. I think oftentimes hoof care providers are expected to fix feet with what we do every four to six weeks, but what about what the rider does every single day? So I explored some of this topic with Deb. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey into training and your interest in soundness and movement? That sounds great, Alicia, yes. I started riding as a a really little child in England. And right from the earliest time I can remember, I wasn't satisfied just to sit on a horse and ride. I wanted to know the whys and hows behind all of it. I wanted to know how their bodies really moved, how they worked from the inside out, how their minds worked, how their emotions worked. And so that really set the foundation for my career because in everything that I then pursued as a competitive rider, I was always seeking that underneath all of the other competition and the active riding. So when I, when I was still living in the UK, I represented England um, on the junior three-day event riding um, team. And that actually took me to Europe, where I studied with some amazing classical dressage riders, because that was really the weakness in my eventing. And as I was doing that, I was really recognizing that not everything that I was being told to do, in spite of the masters and the incredible riders that I was being blessed to ride with, that not everything I was being asked to do felt right. And I can't explain the feel when I say felt right, but there was something intuitively, there was something that I was seeking from the horses I was riding that I that wasn't available. And I was the one that was not allowing it to be available. And as I continued to pursue my, my actually my eventing and then my dressage career to upper levels, what I realized is that it wasn't something that was fundamentally missing in the trainers that I was being instructed by, but there's things that you cannot teach a rider, and feel is one of them. And so really fast forwarding to my journey as, as I continued my competitive career and then started teaching and training, what I realized is that if you can explain to somebody the hows and whys of what you are asking them to do, it allows them to facilitate a different part of the brain. So they're not just being instructed to do something, they are being invited to seek something. And through opening those channels and pathways of the brain, people have an opportunity to begin to start to feel versus just go through the mechanics of writing. And as a clinician, as I, as I moved into doing a lot of teaching and a lot of clinics, I took that approach and really started to notice I had really great results because people were beginning to feel the execution of something that was happening with their horse, not just go ahead and mechanically do it. That was profound to me. And obviously that, you know, I, I practiced that a lot myself and that took my training to a whole different level. And in the last 20 years, what really has happened for me is I have been seeking again more and more the answers to what happens from the horse from the inside out. I spent quite a long time out in the wild studying and observing wild horse language, the herd mentality, how they orchestrate movement and deal with their environment. And a lot of the things that they do as a herd I was able to bring back and translate into training because if we learn from them and their truth about their learning style and their learning mechanisms, we can support them even more 
with the questions we're asking them with training. So that was a very profound learning and continues to be so as, as I continue that journey. And that also has led me to all these different forms of um, bodywork modalities, which I got into not because I necessarily wanted to be a body worker, but because I wanted to have more understanding. So I've studied cranial sacral and quantum energetics and muscular rebalancing techniques and, and many, many um, modalities that have given me the opportunity to answer lots of training questions that I did not have the answer to before. And then I was given the opportunity to go to osteopathic school, which was just an incredible opening for me to learn even more the visceral, the functional, biomechanical, circulatory, just the whole systems of the horse, and then apply those to my training, functional movement capacity to support riders, especially the upper level riders as they are seeking competitive results to actually understand what it is they're asking their horses to do. You know, that's, that's pretty much how the evolution of my career has taken place. I still train. I have four of my own horses, which, which I continue to train and learn from. And I have a young Andalusian that I'm hoping to take into the dressage ring as she continues to teach me some more techniques and some more awareness of how to be the best I can be as a rider and trainer. Yeah, that's really amazing. And, you know, as you're talking about that, one thing that I've been really wanting to learn more about is riding and how riding can affect horses movement. So can you expand upon maybe some ways that imbalanced or poor riding can affect soundness? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Um, That is such a great question. And it's really the foundation of what I love to share because first of all, so often riders look at something their horse is not doing that they would prefer them to do. And they look at it as a training problem. And often it is not a training problem. And the problem with looking at it as a training problem is often people seek training answers to something that is not foundationally a training problem. So that's the first thing. And then I'll I'll elaborate a little. And secondly, the, the second main thing in relationship to this is anytime a horse is in a compensation, he is just waiting to become lame. And the lameness may not show up until later on down the road, but the etiology of that lameness can be years old. So if, if I can, I would love to expand upon, you know, a little bit more detail of that question, because I, I have like three levels of answer to that, that, that address different components that we as riders are up against. So if I can kind of put it into three different levels, perhaps that will help listeners have a deeper appreciation for what I'm sharing um, here. Does that sound okay to you, Alicia? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so one of the first, I say levels or tiers if in balance that I find is that as riders, we're often missing a fundamental awareness of how the horse's body works, of the hows and whys behind correct movement. And, and you know, we're not taught it. Now, I was never taught that when I first learned to ride nor when I was up competing at advanced international levels. I wasn't taught the hows. I was taught what to do. And I certainly don't have all the answers myself. But I I believe that if we can all have a basic awareness of correct and scientific anatomical form and function, no matter what discipline we are engaged in, then we're ahead of the game. And I do believe that a lack of basic awareness sets us up for creating compensation patterns in our horses just because we don't know and we don't necessarily understand what it is we're asking for and where that movement should be coming from. And what I see happen, and you know, I, I was formerly doing quite a bit of judging and, and I noticed this a lot in the judging area is that if we don't have, if a rider, I should say, doesn't have a basic awareness of the function and form of the horse. The rider depends upon the opinion of their trainers, their judges, or the ideal of what that horse should look like relative to the particular discipline that they're riding. And they use those external attributes to achieve a desired outcome. And unfortunately, without even the basic knowledge of the hows and whys, 
of the mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual balance of the horse, that type of training then lends itself more to an expectation of a look and seeking a frame than seeking correct anatomical and biomechanical principles that will then support a rider towards their goals. So that's one of the first things that I think is missing. And, you know, if we don't have that understanding, then we are going to initiate imbalanced riding just out of default because we don't, you know, we don't know any better. So education, I think, is the foundational principle to supporting the horse. The second thing that is really important that I see is that we as riders and trainers continue to train our eyes. And if we talk about poor or imbalanced riding, it's really sad to say, but we can look across the board from beginner riders to Olympians that are not necessarily using correct balance techniques with their riding. So, you know, one way of saying this is that poor riding can be executed by an experienced rider. And as many riders that are seeking just basic level novice training preliminary competition, they are looking to the upper level competitive riders to observe what they're doing and how they're doing it. And it might not be quite as balanced as we would like it to be. And we'll see in a moment why that can cause a lot of dysfunction. So it comes back to, once again, if we don't educate ourselves and start to look for correct principles of movement, we are going to be looking for somebody else and looking at someone else's writing technique and kind of discern, are they winning, are they successful, and use those principles to support ourselves. And, you know, we all have the education that we have and we all have the awareness that we have based on where we are in this moment and hopefully we're all going to just continue to get better so we can't beat ourselves up about where we are but we do owe it I believe to the horse we owe it to their soundness their vitality and their well-being to continue learning but their truth about their body mind and emotions not our truth which means we need to look at the horse we are working with today so in learning their truth about balance, which is looking at the horse we have today, as well as studying that which is based on scientific truth of mechanics, softness, freedom, and true relaxation, we will hopefully limit the amount of compensation that we're putting on our horses because we will not be engaging in exercises that are actually counterproductive. So I always say that when we're riding a horse, we need to look at the end result and then work forward. Now I hope the end result for most people isn't like a competitive blue ribbon. Ultimately, you know, that might be a goal, but the end result of your ride, I believe should be more about, is my horse in balance? Is he in weight bearing posture? Is he using correct articulation of his joints? Is there freedom through the muscular system and are there correct biomechanics of the cranium of the atlas and occipital junction? of his thoracics and his sacral lumbar region and ultimately the spine. And if we're looking for correct writing based on the correct outcome of balance, then we will be more aware if we are executing a movement or being asked to do something that's counterproductive to that. And if we're more aware of that, we'll be less likely to throw a horse into compensation patterns, which means we are less likely to um, invoke lameness and compensation that will cause bracing so that the horse can't functionally move correctly. So I think looking at the end first is one of the best things we can do as riders. You know, anytime there is compensation through incorrect riding and, you know, certain techniques that we may be taught to use, lameness is wasting to happen because an integral part of the system that communicates with another integral part of the horse's system is either not communicating at all or is miscommunicating. And that essentially is what compensation is. It allows all systems to communicate and to synchronize and work in balance. So the thing about compensation and synchronization of movement is it doesn't only affect the anatomical function of the horse if it's not present. What it does is it also creates bracing patterns which limit and potentially immobilize you know, the localized areas that are affected and sometimes the general areas, 
but it also disturbs the balance of the horse's nervous system and therefore the emotional and mental well-being of the horse. So if you think of it from that perspective, lameness can show up emotionally before a horse ever takes a literal lame step. So poor or imbalanced riding can affect the horse emotionally, which then usually creates compensation through the body. It works its way down the body through the limbs, joints, and ultimately the feet, and changes the balance and proprioception of the horse at the level of the foot, which then begins a continued snowball effect throughout the horse's body. And the component we also have to remember, which is actually this third level, which is related to imbalanced riding, is if a rider does not have a neutral posture, then the effect on the horse and how the horse is able to maintain its center of gravity and its correct posture and locomotion are inhibited. And so many times we can be just a hair off what we call neutral. And Peggy Cummings from Connected Riding is one of the first people that I studied with that actually gave me the tools as to how to find a neutral pelvis. There's many disciplines which guide you to do this and do that and do the other thing, but to actually feel it and find it within yourself is one of the, the gifts that Peggy has given to the horse world. Because if you don't have the neutral posture, the horse is busy attempting to carry us and can't facilitate the correct movement and function of his body. So a simple bracing pattern in a rider can therefore create a multitude of compensation patterns in a horse. And the irony then is that if the horse doesn't do what we are wanting him to do because we're compensating, we then consider it a training problem and we increase the ask or increase the aid or add a gadget and that further throws the horse into the imbalance because it's actually us that's potentially creating the problem. You know, I think those are three levels of just looking at how poor or imbalanced riding along with incorrect equipment, saddle bridle, imbalance of the teeth and the jaw and the feet, which is a whole nother topic, but how all of these things can contribute to lameness in a horse, not necessarily immediately, but, you know, functionally, compensationally, and then ultimately down the road in pathology. Something I often wonder about as a hoof care provider is what happens to the distal limb when horses are pushed in ridden work that they might not be ready for. Deb expands on this topic next and talks about the repercussions in the hoof as well. Yeah, and I think you even kind of went into my next question too about some common problems that you see because you were talking about the neutral pelvis. Anything else you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I actually do um, because there's, you know, there's just a whole book that can be written on this. And actually, I am in the final stages of completing a book right now entitled Needs to be More Forward, Not Enough Engagement. Um, because to me, this ultimately speaks to some of the common problems I see um, in writers and indeed experienced myself as a competitive writer in the past. One of the issues I see is that writers are often being told to have the horse in front of their leg. And that is absolutely true and desirable. Yet what we must appreciate is that, first of all, forward is only a direction. It doesn't mean we have to you know, run our horses off their feet. But what I see happening a great deal is that riders are pushing their horses forward in cadence and speed to actually get them moving faster and get them, quote unquote, in front of the leg because a dressage test or a trainer has said, hey, you've got to get this horse in front of your leg. Again, I am not saying that's not true, but the way we go about getting it is a little bit of the problem that we're experiencing. Because if we are pushing a horse to get in front of our leg and just increasing cadence, but the horse does not have the postural and locomotion system that is strong enough to facilitate that level of speed using correct biomechanics, what we're going to see is that mechanical system and postural system of the horse fall apart. It would be like you trying to bench press 100 pounds when you're not even strong enough to lift 50. You're going to compensate drastically. So a lot of the problems that I do see, and I, I've chosen you know, just a couple that are across the board, is that riders that continue to push their horses 
usually then start to advance to using spurs or perhaps a little whip so that the horse will then move away from the aid. But in moving away from the aid, the correct biomechanics of movement breaks down because the horse is just scrambling essentially to stay in balance, move the speed that the rider is asking him to do. And so his legs get faster and faster and he deactivates the entire spinal and postural system which leads to inversion through the head and neck in order for him to just stay in balance because he's posturally not strong enough to go the speed that he's being asked to go. And ultimately this results in a longitudinal inversion as the whole back follows and the hind end trails behind. And the horse usually ends up very much on the forehand. But the immobilization and reversal of the muscle function that's done in the meantime can actually be quite debilitating to the horse and ultimately, of course, cause lameness. And so what happens is the horse will stop moving his back just to facilitate the speed. And so the rider then ends up sitting on the horse's spine, not on the musculature over the ribcage. And that further causes compression on the spinal nerves. And that story can actually go on and on. So that is one of the problems I see. And, and so much of these problems, or I don't even call them problems, but the situations and challenges that we have in the horse industry are because we don't have a deeper understanding of what we are being asked. We throw terms around like self-carriage and engagement. And although people can answer a question about what is self-carriage by saying, well, it's the horse carrying himself. When it comes to the fundamental function and foundation of what is involved in that, many people can't answer that question. So again, we really want to, you know, continue to educate ourselves. And the other thing that I witness a lot as, as you know, a, a certain challenge that I see in riding that that is dysfunctional for the horse is that riders spend a lot of time bending the horse's neck essentially saying that you know they they want the horse to be supple and too often the rein or the bit is being pulled upon as the horse brings his head and neck around to quote-unquote bend and there's very many issues here with this you know this particular exercise that I see a lot in the horse world and one of the main issues here is that the horse is only going to side bend from the vertebral articulation that he can move from so anytime we are asking a horse just to bend through the neck without awareness of lateral flexion at the atlas and occiput, all that's being done is we are exasperating the movement of the vertebrae that can move and therefore we create potential instability. And then the vertebrae that are not as mobile, we do nothing more than facilitate more bracing patterns. In doing this, you know, kind of like side bend exercise, many riders miss the very thing that creates a good and functional side bend in the horse's neck and indeed his spine. And that is lateral flexion at the atlas and the occipital articulation. We don't recognize that a brace in that region, if the lateral flexion is not available, is not only determining how the neck can bend, where there is segmental availability, but also we are not recognizing some of the main components of true bend, which is the release of the jaw, the release of the sphenoid bone, the articulation through again the cervical vertebrae, which allows release through the thoracic sling, which again allows side bend and lateral flexion through the horse's spine all the way to the sacrum. And so if we continue to just ask horses to bend inadvertently through the neck without awareness of correct articulation, we are going to start to change not only functional patterns in the body, but of course landing patterns in the horse's feet. Those landing patterns are going to change wear patterns in the feet. And as those wear patterns start to take on their own compensatory chain of events as well, then we get that snowball effect once again going back to the body, affecting the proprioception, and getting bracing patterns through some of the regions of the muscular system, like the suboccipital region, where there's an awful lot of proprioceptive nerves. 
So anytime we are creating bracing patterns where there's proprioceptive demand, then we are changing the body's awareness of where it is in space and time. So they're just a couple of the major problems that I see in all levels of writing, actually. Yeah, and obviously, you know, those bracing patterns are affecting how they're they're moving over the ground. And my huge focus as a healthcare provider is looking at the feet. Uh, so I was wondering if you've noticed, you know, how, any ways that improper riding can show up in hoof balance or even in pathology in the distal limb. Mm, absolutely, yes. And you know, we've touched on some of the imbalances we see with riding, you know, in our discussion prior to right now. In addition to the bracing and the compensation patterns, what I'd like listeners to appreciate is that anything from a pelvic misalignment, which could include rotation, depressed sacrum, changes through the tibia femur, any imbalance or immobility that's happening through the spine to an imbalance in the jaw through incorrect use of, of the bit or fit of the bit, restriction through the hands, which then tightens the jaw and TMJ and reverses the extensor muscle system and the flexion muscle system of the horse. All of these things are going to affect the wear patterns in the feet. One of the most common wear patterns that I see is when a horse is not laterally bending with correct transverse rotation. I'm speaking to this one because, of course, there's so many, so many. We have high lows, we have compression through the heels, we have dragging toes, we have all kinds of wear patterns that we see through mechanical and training that is not as functional as we would like it. But this movement that I'm talking about, the lateral bending uh, with correct transverse rotation, has quite an impact on the horse's feet because this is a movement that happens mostly between the ninth and 14th vertebrae, thoracic vertebrae of the horse. So it's essentially this this bend and transverse rotation happens underneath the saddle. So anytime you're asking a horse for a simple circle to a shoulder in or even more advanced lateral work, the vertebrae themselves must have a transverse rotation along with the lateral bend. Now we've already looked and spoken to some of the reasons why this isn't happening through compensation with the rider, through other compensations in the horse or bracing patterns, through incorrect articulation at the neck. Also, a big one here is saddle fit. Um, if the horse's saddle does not fit, he's not able to give you correct lateral flexion and transverse rotation. And again, the rider, if a rider is not in a neutral pelvis, this isn't going to happen either. Deb directed me to Diane Sept, a trainer, judge, and specialist in the gated horse world, to comment more on movement and how the hooves are affected by riding and vice versa. I have to always also go to saddles, and I don't know whether Deb visited that or not, but how a saddle is on a horse's back is very, very responsible and effective in either allowing or creating hoof issues. Allowing a hoof to function well or a foot to function not well. One of the very most common things is that saddles so often sit downhill towards the front and pinch behind the shoulder. And of course, when we have the soft area behind the shoulder being inhibited or pinched, it will drop the thoracic sling of a horse, which then puts more trauma down onto the forehand of a horse and that will create incorrect movement in the entire forelimb, which therefore will put lack of balance and trauma down into that foot. The bone should lift up and then, you know, reach forward and land with the heel and roll over again. But if the horse's body is being inhibited or braced by shoulders that are not able to flow properly or a depressed, dropped, bracing thoracic area or girth area, then the, the whole leg, the whole front leg apparatus is put out of correct function or movement. The feet, the teeth, 
and the saddle are imperative. And without good teeth and good saddles, the feet can't be good. What happens when there isn't that transverse rotation available along with the lateral bend? We get what we call an inverted rotation, which essentially means the vertebrae are going in the wrong direction. And if you have ever ridden a circle and feel as though your seat is being shifted to the outside of the saddle, if you're going, say, to a left circle, you feel like your right seat bone and your seat itself is, is going to the outside, that is an example of an inverted rotation. So this pattern, which can cause shearing through the lumbar sacral region, can also wear the heels or quarters medially or laterally on all four feet. The reason this is such a dysfunctional pattern is because so many people don't comprehend what a rotational lateral bend is versus an inverted bend. So we often, I'm often seeing horses that are constantly giving inverted rotations. And so what happens then is the trimmer is always seeing this particular wear pattern of the heels or quarters. But because an inverted rotational lateral bend is not something that's quite as obvious as perhaps a toe dragging, it's often missed. And when we have footwear patterns and we're not quite sure where they're coming from, sometimes the trimmers, are, you know, we're trying to balance out the foot but you can't really balance out a foot when there's such a, a deep compensation pattern in the body because every step that a horse takes is he's either medially or laterally wearing a pattern because he's shearing in his hindquarters. This particular pattern that you see in the foot is, again, it's like lower heels medially or laterally depending upon which side the rotational inversion is in the spine. Um, you're always going to see the horse having an on the forehand wear pattern as well as an angular hoof wear pattern because these these horses that don't have rotational capacity are with crooked. The danger of this is that these patterns are going to put a lot of strain on your P1, P2, P3 and ultimately changes pathologically in the foot because of protraction and retraction. So we start to see things like side bone. We start to see the bones of the feet themselves potentially laying bone. So side bones and ring bones can be a pathological result of a medial lateral landing pattern that is created by an inverted rotation of the horse's thoracic vertebrae because when he's riding a circle, his vertebrae don't go in the correct direction, or when he's being asked to constantly do lateral work, those vertebrae are not moving correctly. And so something as simple as a rotation in the spine can cause loading patterns that change compression in the feet, that change obviously the landing and wear patterns that can actually change pathology of the foot. So I, I don't know if that answers your, your question, Alicia. There's just so many loaded and gravity-laden issues that we see with a foot because of simple compensation patterns that can be corrected by knowledgeable riding or just us educating ourselves about the horse's body. But I also want to say that, you know, horses, obviously, as you know, as a, a professional, that horses can have changes in the feet that can then create compensations in the body. And one of the things I love about working with Ida Hammer is that we have just created this incredible workshop together that looks at how one can feed the other. And, you know, sometimes it's the foot that creates the body issues and sometimes it's the body that creates the footwear issues. So, you know, it's, it's such a complex and incredibly interesting topic to learn about. Next, Deb talks about some practical bodywork exercises owners can utilize to be more aware of where tension might be hiding in their horse's body. You might want a pen and paper for this part because she gives a handful of detailed concepts to try out. Yeah, and the more I hear you talk, the more I feel like it almost seems like peeling back an onion of what's causing what and what's coming first. And, you know, I obviously focus on the feet so much and I'm trying to make sure that I'm asking those questions about how the owner is riding or about body work or about injuries or anything else that might affect those wear patterns. You know, thinking about that and, you know, wanting to give the listeners something that they can, they can look for and check in their own riding. Um, do you have any practical tips for how riders might be able to improve their balance or things 
to check to see if their riding is affecting their horse? Yes, that's that's essential to um, us being able to educate and move ourselves out of some of these compensation patterns that we might be carrying or that the horse is carrying. And again, it, it comes back to awareness and developing our eye. I am a huge fan of in-hand work, first and foremost. Whatever level my horses are uh, working at under saddle, they are always a level beyond that in their in-hand work because that's where we as riders and trainers and, and horsemen can facilitate the weight-bearing posture and the balance of the horse without us you know, dumping our body issues to it. So first and foremost, I always encourage people if they've never done any in-hand work or groundwork, I would encourage people to first touch your horse all over. Literally just run your hand from the pole all the way back, uh, down the neck, all the way across the thoracic lumbar area, over his hindquarters, under his belly, and just become aware of muscle tightness or tension patterns. Are there places on your horse that don't want to be touched? Is he different left to right? Just really familiarize yourself with your horse's muscular texture, if you will. Um, does he release when you put a hand somewhere or does he brace? And so that's the very first thing that I invite people just to observe, just you know, start to feel and observe. And then look at the symmetry of your horse's musculature. Now, you know, horses are asymmetrical by nature and their movement patterns are asymmetrical. But if you look at the symmetry of the musculature by standing right in front of the horse's head and kind of crouching down and looking and seeing the development of the shoulders and where the rib cage is left to right. Is his rib cage more pronounced to the left or to the right? And then stand behind the horse, of course, safely and look at the muscular development left to right. And if you can have someone hold your horse and you can like, you know, get a fair distance behind and perhaps stand on a stool so you can have a view looking down you can look at his spine. Does it look straight? Is there one side of his longissimus dorsi that looks like it's full and another side that looks like it's somewhat atrophied or it's not quite as full? Again, start to observe your horse visually as well as feeling. And that will give you an insight as to whether your horse has something going on. Because if you see asymmetry or you see areas in your horse where there's tension, overdevelopment of muscle, atrophy of muscle, imbalance of muscle, there will be a compensation pattern. So simple hand placement then on parts of the horse that need to release are super important. Um, Peggy Cummings, again, I have referred to her once before with the connected riding work because connected riding isn't actually a discipline, but it is something that has really supported riders to begin to understand their own bodies and to begin to release tension patterns in their horse through Peggy's connected groundwork. So Peggy has some information about some simple groundwork techniques that can really support riders in breaking up racing patterns. But one of the things I like to do is I just put my hand on an area of the horse that needs to release. And, and for the sake of this discussion, I'm going to say Put your hand behind the horse's ear on his suboccipital muscles and then just gently rest or lay the palm of your hand on, on that muscle and essentially you're putting your hand over the outlet. And you just have a very light connection to the halter while you're doing so. And just let your hand be there. Don't do anything, don't rub, don't push. Just let your hand be there. And observe what your horse does. Does he soften into that? Does he release and lower his head? Does he lift and brace to try to move you away from that connection? Does he turn the other way? Does he just stay still and get really tuned into his body in that moment and then begin to release and lick and chew? Be aware of what he is doing and make a note of it. It's kind of, I, I say it's like creating a canvas, a painting canvas. If you have this blank canvas and you go out and you touch your horses in the three areas that I'm going to share with you and you don't have to create a story about it, just have the fact. You know, when I put my hand here, my horse does this, 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 this. When I go to the other side and put my hand on that 
occipital region to the right, he does this, this, and this. So if on one side where you put your hand, he's bracing and turning his head away from you, he is informing you of, at the very minimal, a bracing retention pattern. If on the other side he's releasing into you, then he's letting you know, you know, this side feels good, thank you so much. But the other side, I'm having challenges. And you will begin to recognize, well, that's interesting. When I'm riding and I ask for a little lateral flexion to the left, he leans on the bit, he's heavy on his left shoulder, he can't give me an articulation or a bend through the neck. So you begin to start creating a pattern of body awareness that is relative to your riding. So I would do that particular exercise over the atlas um, and those suboccipital muscles. And then I would do it on the shoulder. I would just gently place my hand on the shoulder, just standing still. What does my horse do? Does he move away from that hand? Does he lift and lighten that particular leg or his shoulder? Or does he lean into it? Again, this is all information for you. And then do the same thing at the level of the hip. Um, and those are some very, very basic things that, that you can do. Another thing that takes it beyond a little more of the basic is I am a big fan of backing up a horse because it completely reorganizes the musculoskeletal and ligamentous system of the hindquarters. And because the sacroiliac junction is, uh, and, and the SI joint itself is very ligamentous by nature, Anytime you ask the horse to walk back, you are actually reversing the strains and tensions that can be asymmetrically braced or tight, I should say, when the horse is moving forward. So you can actually create release and reorganization of the ligaments and the system when you back a horse up. The caveat to this is in order to effectively back a horse up, I would encourage people to do it on the ground so they're not you know, inadvertently hauling on the horse's head because that is not where a backup should be initiated from. It should be initiated from the thoracic sling and the engagement of the hindquarters to lift the thoracic sling and then move the spine to create the, the hind end movement. So what I, I always like to do is I stand in front of my horse gently with my hands over the nose band. So I'm creating longitudinal flexion and extension. And again, when I say gently, I mean a very, 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 very light connection. And I invite the horse to keep his head as low as the withers. Again, not by pulling or pushing, but I can gently place my hand on the pole and just do little tiny oscillations to see if he can release and at least lower the head to the level of the withers. Or I can glide in around the shoulder and do what Peggy Cummings calls the shoulder delineation, which actually releases the base of the neck. And once, once the horse has his head level, I use my finger to connect with the chest right above either the left limb or the right limb, whichever diagonal pair of legs need to go back. And I ask him to rock those diagonal pair of legs back. And so I ask him to take two deliberate steps, well, I should say one deliberate step with the left hind, the left front, for example, on the right hind. So one step, and then I let him wait and feel that. And then I ask the other two diagonals to go. So I very slowly and deliberately ask him to walk backwards using his diagonal pairs, being aware of how easy it is for him to actually use those diagonal pairs because horses that are out of balance will have a difficult time using those diagonal pairs sequentially. They might just move one front foot and then inadvertently the hind foot will go or vice versa or you might notice all kinds of different patterns. But what I encourage you to do is continue to support your horse by inviting him to recalibrate and re-coordinate so he can move the two diagonal legs one pair at a time. And you can transition from him doing this on the flat to having him doing this up a hill. And I actually use poles as well. And I will have horses walk over two or three poles and I don't actually have them set at any particular distance. I might do like four feet, six feet. I might just change them around because I want proprioceptively the horse to start to feel for himself where his body is. 
So I might then transition to walking him over poles and then asking him to back up over those poles. And that, in addition to, um, as we said, reversing the organization of the hindquarter muscles, what that also does, it starts to create more flexion and extension of the lumbosacral area and the pelvic area, which oftentimes in complicated courses is not functioning as it should. So you start to inform that body yet once again that it can flex in movement, not just have the legs have this sequential movement without the information from the spine. So those are a couple of things I like to do. I'm always, again, big on asking the horse to rock back, which means not just even like I spoke of just now with his feet moving, I'll actually just ask him to rock his chest back through his front limbs because if you look at many horses, and this is a fun exercise for people to do, is if you stand and put a halter and a lead rope on your horse and look at how he stands, does he look as if his chest is coming forward out between his front legs? Or is his chest shifted back between his front legs? And what you want is the image of a horse looking over a cliff with his weight back in his hindquarters while his neck is released and telescoping out, looking over the cliff. And in order for him to do that, he has to have his chest shifted back between his front legs. So again, just very simply with your fingers touching the sternum and just inviting the horse very lightly to shift his weight back between his front legs starts to reorganize that postural system. I wondered what Deb meant earlier when she mentioned finding a neutral pelvis for the rider. How do we even do that, especially if it's so important to ensure our horse doesn't have to compensate for our imbalances? Deb explains how to find it next. For the rider, of course, gosh, I can go on and on with exercises, and I'll just give this one quick thing with the rider because of course the riding is so super important. A neutral pelvis can be found really easily by getting on your horse and bringing your knees up like a jockey. I always recommend people having someone hold their horse to do that, especially the first time. But if you bring your knees up, what that will automatically do is put your pelvis into a neutral posture. And you won't have to worry about getting on and wiggling around to try to find a posture that your brain thinks is right because your nervous system has been sitting in this posture for a long time. And that's the issue that we have is our body, our muscle memory gets used to being in a certain position. And so when we try to find a neutral posture, our body will always guide us back to what is familiar. So if you bring your knees up and just feel what it feels like to be in that balance and then gently lower your leg without pushing your legs back to where you had them or have them usually. Just let them hang. What you'll notice is your thigh is a little wider and your thigh will surround the horse. And if you just sit there for you know 30 seconds and allow your body to soften and adjust to this opening of the thighs, you'll notice your legs will fall into the position that they need to be in for your particular anatomy, not, not someone else's. Um, I hear so often, put your leg back, do this, do that, do the other. But if the rider doesn't have the fundamental foundational neutral pelvis, then all we're doing is fixating the hips and fixating and compressing the spine with bracing. And all of these patterns will create severe compensation in the horse. So that's just, there are just a few things that you can do to support um, your own posture. Again, I have some groundwork and in-hand little books which have some very basic simple exercises that people can certainly have access to and I can actually put up a few of these exercises on our website so people can, uh, some of the listeners can access them to have an understanding of what we're speaking to here. Um, also, Peggy Cummings has a book connecting with your horse from the ground up which has some groundwork exercises in and some very basic neutral pelvis exercises in as well so there are a lot of good books and there's a lot of good information out there 
and I just say I, I would just like to say to to the listeners please just educate yourself don't take it from me don't take it from the books start to learn a little bit more of anatomical form and function listen to your horse he is the ultimate teacher and no matter what I say what your teacher says what a trainer says doesn't matter how good they are let your horse inform you because if he's saying no the answer is no this isn't right for me at this time and so continue to educate yourself and start to learn a little bit more about form function and correct movements so that you can reach your goals with your horse but without invalidating him and without causing him pain and discomfort and ultimate lameness yeah and it seems like there's so much more to learn and know on this topic and also on the website people can go to our workshop page and look at the different workshops that we do offer because I, I very much enjoy putting together lectures that relate to riders so we can support riders in being more functional at whatever level they're working, you know, whether they're upper level riders or trail riders. I really enjoy teaching riders the how behind what we're asking them to do because I think if riders understand why and how their riding is affecting their horse, they're more likely to be open to some of the changes that may facilitate better function, form, and movement in the horses. So I love putting together lectures and we do actually have a whole series of workshops and lectures, some just lectures and groundwork, some lectures and writing, which help riders put together some of these functional anatomical pieces to actually their understandable execution of writing. So that is all um, on my website initially, yes. Great. And can you just say that website? Sure. It's www.equineselfexpression.com. I just want to chime in here with a side note. On Deb's website, she has a workbook that can be used as a step-by-step guide to basic groundwork. Use the code PODCASTLISTENERS, all one word, for $5 off. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for being willing to do this. Thanks. You too, Alicia. Bye-bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.